You're listening to Ideas on Europe, a podcast by UACES, the Membership Association for Contemporary European Studies. Welcome to this podcast recording from the UACES Graduate Conference. I'm Laura Gehlhaus. I'm here with Carlos Bravo Laguna from the Universitat Pompeo Fabra and EBE, which is the Barcelona Institute of International Studies. He's a second year PhD student studying trans-European crises or crises that appear outside the EU but have an impact on the EU, meaning that both the EU and non-EU actors have to coordinate in solving and addressing the crisis. I'm ecstatic to ask him about, about his research a little bit. Carlos's paper that he presents here is about the Icelandic ash cloud, the crisis that was associated with that. Could you maybe summarize mm-hmm. the, the Icelandic ash cloud crisis a little bit for me, please? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Laura. Yes, uh, well, this uh, crisis uh, started in, well, and took place in April 2010, so a few years ago already, uh, after a volcano uh, erupted in uh, Iceland, sending big chunks of ash to the European skies who were unfortunately driven by the wind to the European continent. This is actually the the fact that there is a volcanic eruption in Iceland is not that uncommon, but what was uncommon was that this ash reached the European skies, thereby causing an unprecedented crisis in the aviation sector because a couple of decades before, there had been some incidents that had proven that ash was highly dangerous for airplane engines, and therefore the recommendations by the UN Agency for Civil Aviation, the International Civil Aviation Organization, were please do avoid ash at all costs. That meant that country uh, governments took that instruction quite literally uh, in this crisis and completely closed their airspaces when there was any trace of ash. Uh, visible, I mean, perceptible uh, in their in their um, airspace. This caused uh, hundreds of flights to be cancelled, uh, planes to be grounded, passengers to be stranded in airports, and it caused heavy financial losses, not just what we would intuitively think uh, as a result of tourists uh, not being able to reach their destinations, but for example, This would affect a lot, for example, Kenya, which was a country whose big chunk of its exports are rose exports. They were unable to reach Europe and they would be left to rot. Therefore, this country actually lost a very big chunk of its export share that year. Therefore, there was a problem because there wasn't enough research as to what was the safe amount of ash that planes could fly through and therefore authorities were suggesting don't fly at all but the issue is that the days were passing by and financial losses were higher and higher and higher therefore there had to be a little bit of uh, improvisation to be honest and after a few days uh, after a series of test flights and some scientific evidence was put on the table there was a more flexible approach that was adopted so that flights were allowed in those parts of the airspace that were not affected by ash or there was actually a threshold of ash that was set. This actually involved a bit of risks because there was not scientific consensus for this, but still there was a a threshold that that was set and this allowed for for flights to um, happen again. But uh, after this crisis actually millions of euros were actually lost and we can say that this is a success story in the sense that 
pretty quick decision was reached within a week. But, you know, still, it's a very interesting case to, to study. Given that this is quite a case that I think is quite niche, what made you choose that case specifically? Well, actually, this belongs to a category of cases, as you've explained, uh, the trans-European crisis, which are incidents that uh, are originated outside of the EU borders but actually affect the European Union as a whole. And, and actually quite interesting to study because there are events that are extremely complex to manage. In the case of Iceland and Norway, which were the main non-EU countries affected by this uh, circumstance, the level of integration is higher. But if you think of other cases, which I will actually explore in, in, in future stages of my, of my thesis, such as the Ebola crisis, this uh, involved uh, coordination between Uh, the European Union and uh, countries that uh, had had no contact with the European institutions whatsoever were not very familiar with uh, each other's protocols of action and uh, even sometimes uh, the European Union was forced to intervene in a, um, an external country and it was not necessarily legitimized for doing so. So it's actually something that is worth having a look at uh, this case. Certainly uh, it uh, leads to some conclusions that hopefully will be generalized to other uh, types of uh, external crises such as this one. You, you use quite an interesting way to, to approach this, not through, you know, discourse analysis or interviews per se, but you use it from, from a network perspective. What is it that makes this network analysis stand out to be um, the, the right way or the, the most appropriate way to study these, these trans-European crises? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I think that should be said about this is that uh, the network perspective uh, lays emphasis on the relations between actors other approaches just will uh, um, have a look at individual attributes of or individual actors, individual institutions, whereas here uh, net, the network perspective will see how different institutions are coordinating or are interacting with each other. And in the case of a crisis, this is something really, really interesting. And actually, one of the first thing, things that caught my attention is that not many people have actually had a look at this from, from this angle, because actually, Uh, when you need to come up with a solution in very few days, it's very important uh, who you are talking to. If you're talking to everyone that is available or you just resort to a few channels, uh, I think that this is uh, something that is definitely worth having a look at. Mm -hmm. So because you already talked about your conclusions that might be generalizable, what, what are the first findings that you've had so far? Well, so far I, I was trying to relate this uh, case to theories of European integration, actually, seeing what was, uh, which were the institutions that had the most influence uh, in the management of this uh, Icelandic ash cloud crisis. And uh, actually there were some theories that would tell us that the, the uh, EU institutions from the supranational level would be the most influential. This is the case of neo-functionalism, for example. Then you've got another stream uh, that was originally put forward in order to counter these first uh, neo-functionalist theories that uh, is in, in intergovernmentalism that says that basically policy making takes place as a result of uh, bargaining across governments and therefore we would expect that uh, member state uh, governments were the most central actors here. And actually what I found is that definitely uh, supranational actors have a very, very, very important role. 
It is also the case uh, of member state governments, but we could see that less so. I mean, especially when it comes to the European Council is an institution that has a rather marginal position in the so-called network, which is, I haven't explained, it's a graph that shows you very, very clearly uh, who is in touch with whom, and who is more central and who is less central, and also uh, allows you to, to have a look at the informal level of interactions, actually not just a formal meetings but also informal talks so here from this perspective you see how the uh, supranational actors are more important definitely the most central we would say also member state governments perhaps a bit less so and then Another interesting finding is the position of the non-EU country governments, in this case Norway and Iceland. Maybe as one would expect if you have a look at the position of these actors, which are very heavily integrated into European Union by means of the European Economic Area and the EFTA agreement. Uh, basically, these countries have no formal presence in the Parliament, the Council and the Commission, but still are participating in many, many different policy initiatives that the EU takes forward. We would expect actually this to be quite uh, central, but perhaps less so than the, than the member state governments. And it's actually the case. This is what we found, as opposed to, for example, interest groups, because when we are saying, yeah, everyone is central, who is less central? Maybe interest groups such as pilot associations, airline associations, uh, we would expect, we would not know maybe whether these uh, more private uh, actors would have had an interest. They definitely had an interest in the crisis to end because they were the ones uh, losing money. So they actually put a lot of pressure, but actually their their influence in decision making, so to say, was a bit lower, even if it was definitely tangible, there was uh, some, some level of influence. All right. Thank, thanks a lot for this. That was really, really interesting. Do you maybe, for, for people who are really intrigued by your topic, who would like to read more about it, would you have a couple of literature advice? Yes, of course. Uh, concerning social network analysis, which is actually a very interesting method for those that don't know about it yet, the one that I would advise for someone that is not very knowledgeable with this with this uh, methodology is the first chapters of one book by Gary Robbins that was published in 2015. This is a scholar from the University of Melbourne, and the title is Doing Social Network Research, Network-Based Research Design for Social Research. This is a very good uh, handbook that you can go over, I mean, page by page, but then if you want a bigger reference book where you can check out what a term is, but maybe not read page by page, a classic here is the book by Stanley Wasserman and Katharine Faust uh, that was published in 1994, Social Network Analysis Methods and Applications. Then, if you want to uh, see what, what is out there concerning crises, especially in the, in the setting of the European Union, I would recommend the work by Arjen Boyne, who's a scholar in Leiden University. And when it comes to differentiated integration, which is this thing that I've talked about, how non-EU countries or even EU countries themselves are integrated into the wider EU fabric, uh, I would definitely recommend the work by uh, Frank Schimmelfenig or and also that of Dirk Leufen. Schimmelfenig is a scholar in Zurich, whereas Leufen is at the moment in Konstanz uh, Universität. Thank you, Carlos, for these really intriguing insights into your research. I, I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. And likewise, Laura. Mm -hmm.
For more UACES podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast and don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.